warm welcome to all our first movers around the globe. Fantastic to have you with us for what can only be called a Super Thursday on the program, or shall we say a meta first move. The ECB announcing another huge rate hike, the US economy in growth mode once again, and more mega tech earnings. We're even throwing in the kitchen sink. <laughs> Sink in the Tesla CEO and not yet official owner of Twitter visiting Twitter headquarters yesterday, carrying a familiar household fixture, as you can see there, and a big grin, of course. A truly watershed moment ahead, but perhaps not too much kitchen sinking, or actual kitchen sinking, as reports suggest the billionaire is walking back on plans to chop 75% of the Twitter workforce. And with the Twitter deal expected to close tomorrow, it's seemingly too late for it to go down the drain, must taking a sink to the office, but did he still take a bath on the deal? It remains to be seen. In the meantime, over in Europe and at Credit Suisse, steep job losses on the way, it seems. The troubled banking giant reporting a more than $4 billion quarterly loss and looking set to raise a similar amount to finance its turnaround plans. A lot of cash coming from the Saudi National Bank. Never mind Davos in the desert. This is more donation from the desert. Investors, however, far from convinced that this plan can work. Credit Suisse stock down some 11 percent in trading this Thursday. And misery, too, at Meta, better known as Facebook, a serious loss of face. Shares set to fall over 22 percent as ad revenues weaken and dwindling profits are being spent on things most people simply don't understand, like virtual reality and the metaverse. Meta's virtual reality division, in fact, losing some $9 billion so far this year. Meta's results adding to meta gloom in the tech sector overall, following weak results from Microsoft and Alphabet this week. The Nasdaq, as you can see, set for another lower open after Wednesday's 2% loss. But the blue chips set for a nice bounce there, as you can see. The Dow higher by some eight-tenths of 1%. And this is new economic numbers. Support claims that, at least for now, there is no U.S. recession. The U.S. economy growing at a stronger-than-expected 2.6% annualized rate in the third quarter. This, of course, after two quarters of contraction. On closer analysis, however, we are still in some hot water. Let that sink in. Rahel Solomon joins us now, and she's been pouring through the depths of the water and the detail on this one. Keep those analogies going. Yes, there we go, Rahel. Devil in the detail, I just mentioned there. Talk us through what contributed to this positive result and the jump in the third quarter. Well, I think that's a great place to start, Julia. So the largest contributors to the growth that we saw for the U.S. economy were things like net exports, consumer spending. Let that sink in. We're going to toss back to that in just a moment. Uh, Federal government spending for things like defense spending, uh, starting to see the first signs of infrastructure spending being uh, spent there, and state and local government spending. And I think we can show you some of these drivers here, state and local government spending, and that in terms of uh, compensation for salaries for, for workers. So nice to see a nice little bump for some state and local workers here in the U.S. Now, I want to get back to consumer spending because, Julia, as you know, consumer spending is about 70 percent of U.S. GDP. And what we saw there, still positive, but continuing to slow. As Mark Zandi, the chief economist of Moody's, just told me about 15 minutes ago, we talked right after the report crossed. He says, look, the consumer is still spending modest, but consistently. It's encouraging consumers and businesses are hanging in. They're holding on. 
But that's just about it, right? I mean, he said that it doesn't tell us much more about where we're heading, although he says that if you were in the camp that thought we were currently in a recession, well, this sort of dispels that. Yeah. And it's a great point, though. This is backward looking data. We still don't really know uh, where we're headed, but we'll keep a focus on the jobs market in particular, because that was the outlier among this weaker Mm. data that we were seeing. Jobs market still incredibly strong. Rahel, good job pouring over those numbers for us. Thank you so much. Okay, in the past hour, the European Central Bank has again raised interest rates to try and damp down the historic surge in inflation in the region. The main rate goes up by three quarters of a percent. Anna Stewart here to explain what it means, not to be outdone, of course, with what the Fed's doing, Anna. But when you've got inflation at, what, 9.9 percent in the euro area, they have to get moving and they have to do more. What did they say about that specifically? Yeah, in terms of inflation, it's nearly five times its targets. So they certainly have to do more. And I think there are three main areas we can look at. First of all, of course, interest rates. They've raised again today by 75 basis points. And they say they expect to raise interest rates further. One and a half percent is kind of considered to have a neutral effect on the economy. So any higher than that becomes restrictive. Of course, there are some that are concerned looking at economic growth in the eurozone that we could see a repeat of 2008 when the ECB famously raised rates only to slash them a few months later. Number two, quantitative tightening. And this is where the ECB is actually taking a very different strategy to the Bank of England. I was expecting to see at least a signal about QT. Nothing here. They're actually not even doing it passively. They will continue to reinvest maturing bonds. So I think that's the biggest surprise really of today. And the third area really is just ensuring that these rate hikes pass through, filter through to the real economy. And there's been a lot of criticism in recent weeks over. And for those that don't follow the ECB closely and don't have to, forgive me, Teltro 3 is one of the lending programs introduced after the pandemic to encourage lending. And of course, banks essentially borrowed at zero or negative rates. And now they can park that cash at the ECB with higher rates and get a little carry trade there. That is something the ECB wants to stop. So perhaps the most controversial part of today is the fact that they are going to adjust the rate applied to Teltro 3, offer early repayment dates. That is something the banks may fight, but in many ways that would shrink the balance sheet a little. Yeah, it's so important. And the difficulties of setting monetary policy for 19 different countries when some countries have got room to manoeuvre to provide fiscal support and others don't. And the cost of credit, the cost of cash rising dramatically. Anna, thank you so much for that. Anna Stewart there. Okay, let's move on now to the meta meltdown. Shares of the company behind Facebook plunging more than 20% in pre-market trade after its earnings and forecasts disappointed. Third quarter profit less than half of what it made a year ago. And its metaverse spending is expected to become an even bigger drain. Claire Duffy joins us on this. Claire, great to have you with us. I think the biggest problem for investors is that the core part of the business is is struggling or at least facing difficult and challenging times. And at the same time, they're ramping up the spending on things like virtual reality and the metaverse that most people simply have no clue what it is. It's difficult for investors. I think that's right. I think investors are starting to get sort of fed up on all the money that Meta Mm. is spending in this sort of future version of the Internet that's many years from being realized. And it's not clear if consumers even want to be living with headsets on and walking around in a virtual world for much of their day. Reality Labs, the unit that covers their artificial and virtual reality uh, efforts that are so key to this metaverse, lost $9.4 billion in the first nine months of this year. And Meta says it's going to spend even more money on the unit next year. And I think investors are just sort of unsure 
of when this effort is going to pay out, how this effort is going to pay out. And in the meantime, as you say, Meta's core business is facing numerous challenges. It's, you know, continuing to struggle with Apple's ad tracking changes that changed how it's able to advertise to its users. It is, like all the tech companies, struggling with this economic downturn, high inflation, and decreased advertising budgets. And so it's not clear that its core business is going to be able to cover these investments on this really sort of experimental side of the company. Yeah, and we were just showing the uh, longer-term share price there as well. I mean, we're seeing a, what, 23% drop pre-market, but this share price has been under severe pressure. And, of course, uh, the wealth of Mark Zuckerberg himself under pressure here, too. Yeah, Mark Zuckerberg has lost about $60 billion in his wealth just this year. Uh, you know, it's it's really massive. But at the same time, you know, I'm not sure how much he is going to care about that at this point. Last night during the earnings call with analysts, he really sort of defended the company's legacy, said that people are going to look back on these efforts that they're making to build the metaverse and see what a big impact it had. And he's not sure that anybody else would be doing this right now if Meta weren't working on it. Mm. And he's probably right. But for investors in the short term, hold on to your seats and your hats. Claire, great to have you with us. Thank you. Claire Duffy there. OK, we want to bring you now a CNN exclusive. Our international diplomatic editor, Nick Robertson, is on the ground in Ukraine at a power station incapacitated by Russian forces. Nick, what can you tell us about what you're seeing and finding? Yeah, the difficulty faced by the workers here is compounded by the fact that it has become one of the main targets for Russia's attacks on Ukraine. All the power stations across the country have. And literally, as we arrived here earlier in the day, the air raid sirens went off and we went into the bunker with all the other workers here, which means they can't be involved in doing their repair work. Uh, we were down there for quite a period of time. Um, everyone was comfortable. They're getting used to um, this sort of operation. It's a daily occurrence for them uh, going into the bunkers. But what we saw when we came out was quite extensive destruction of the equipment that is perhaps the most sensitive area in the power plant. It is equipment that's based around the uh, periphery of the plant. It is switching equipment. Um, it is high voltage cabling that's, uh, that is particularly vulnerable to uh, the missile strikes. And they've had two rounds of missile strikes here on the uh, they've had two rounds of missile strikes here. On one occasion, um, again, I think what I'll do here is not get into specifics because one of the things we're doing here is not giving specifics about the location and the number of strikes might give, an, give that indication. But it's been hit by both cruise missiles and by drones over a period. But the destruction of the equipment is, what's the, the, is what makes the repair here difficult. Things like pylons and cables can be fixed, but some of this equipment isn't manufactured anymore. Some of it's specific to this location, so it will need to be ordered. That takes time. It will need to be perhaps scavenged from other power plants across the country uh, and, or even requested from international partners, which is, which is what the power generating company here wants to do right now. So the task faced by Ukraine to keep power stations like this back on air is, is a daunting task because in essence what they have to do is, be, is to be able to outpace uh, with repairs the continuing and ongoing and attritional damage by uh, the Russian forces. And, and from what we've witnessed here today, that is a very uh, steep hill to climb. Uh, they insist that they'll do their best 
But at this stage, I wouldn't want to stand here and say that this is something that they're going to be able to to continue to keep on top of as they are at the moment. It really um, an element of this depends on how much Russia increases those strikes. It is a particularly precarious position that the country now faces from what we've seen here at, at just this one site. Nick, it's so important for you to be there to help us understand the scale of the challenge and, of course, what the Ukrainian people are facing in the coming months, too. Um, Nick, thank you so much for that. Nick Robertson there in Ukraine. Okay, straight ahead. Treating patients over Instagram in Iran. Some people are turning to social media for help, fearing repercussions if they seek help at home. We speak with one New York-based doctor who's offering his help. Plus... Fast-tracking the transition to green energies. I'm joined by the director of the International Energy Agency later in the show. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. 40 days after 22-year-old Masa Hamini died in the custody of Iran's morality police, protesters across the country gathered again, chanting, Women, Life, Freedom. Thousands of people gathered at Tamini's grave despite tight security. And a near total internet blackout was reported in Iran's Kurdistan province, where Amini was from. Nada Bashir joins us now with more details. Nada, what more do you have? Well, look, Julia, six weeks on and these protests simply aren't losing steam. We are still seeing hundreds, if not thousands, taking to the streets across the country, not only in remembrance of Masa Amini and the other uh, young women who have died at the hands of Iran's uh, security forces and morality police uh, since September, but now, of course, uh, calling for regime change, many of them calling for their fundamental human rights to be upheld and respected. And we saw this widespread protest yesterday uh, taking place up and down the country, and, of course, many of them gathering at Masa Amini's burial uh, site. And we are still seeing that violent crackdown by the Iranian security forces particularly uh, today. We have seen violence and clashes in the West Azerbaijan province in the city of Mahabad following the funeral of a protester who was killed uh, yesterday uh, following a funeral. Now, of course, this is a growing concern for many across the country and, of course, internationally, as we see these violent clashes uh, intensify. We've seen the use of tear gas against protesters, uh, shots being fired, although it's unclear what is being shot uh, to disperse these protesters. And, of course, there are concerns around the rising death toll being reported by human rights organisations. We've heard from Amnesty International today raising the alarm bell around the situation in Mahabad. They say Iran's security forces are unlawfully using firearms against thousands in Mahabad. Iran's authorities must immediately rein in security forces. And, of course, there are also concerns now around the possible intensification of that crackdown uh, following a terror incident in the southern city of Shiraz at the Chajarah Shrine uh, yesterday on Wednesday evening, where at least 15 people were killed. And the Iranian authorities have long held that these protests that we're seeing up and down the country, the unrest, as they've characterized it by rioters, uh, have been fueled and encouraged but by what they've described as foreign actors. And they have accused foreign nationals uh, of shooting at worshippers at this shrine on Wednesday evening. And now there have been uh, the sentiment from the authorities that this crackdown could intensify in response to that attack. There are concerns from human rights groups that this attack could set the pretext for an intensification of the crackdown for further violence 
at the hands of Iran's security forces in response to this incident. Julia? Nada Bashir there. Thank you so much for that update. Now, doctors and other medical professionals in Iran also joined protesters on Wednesday. One doctor who attended a peaceful protest outside a medical facility in Tehran told our next guest, quote, we had courage and we went to be with our people, but they beat and arrested us. Hundreds of injured protesters are turning to people like Dr. Kevan Mirhadi, an Iranian-American doctor based here in New York. They hope he can connect them to doctors based in Iran who are willing to help and can also be trusted. Joining us now is Dr. Kevan Mirhadi. He's the chief of internal medicine at Clifton Springs Hospital. Dr. Mirhadi, great to have you on the show. Just explain what you've been hearing from colleagues back home this week. Um, the stories are very sad and heartbreaking. A lot of my friends who are physicians, they went out to protest the right to treat their patients, essentially the wounded protesters. Um, on the day, the day before arrival, they received text messages not to show up to this protest due to violence that, that was impending. Uh, when they showed up, uh, it was a peaceful protest and they started getting uh, shot at. Um, the, and we're talking about these are professors and attendings um, that they were beating them, they were arresting them, they were shooting at them. It was horrific stories and their videos that they sent to me. Kayvon, we actually have some images that you've shared on social media uh, that other people have seen of those that were injured this week. And, and I just want to show our viewers what those images are. And I know you know what we're looking at. Tell me what we're seeing in these images. Can you tell me what was used? What, what were these individuals shot with? Yeah, I get many of these images every day. Um, the ones that you're looking at are from peaceful protesters. Um, and the majority of injuries that I see are uh, pallet shots. Uh, the one on the left that you see are multiple pallet shots that uh, are likely bird shot. Um, they are penetrating wounds. They can cause damage to the nerves, to the vascular structures. Um, and I try my best to give them first aid instructions how to take care of them. But essentially, they have to go to the hospital and be treated uh, in a hospital setting. But because of the presence of the authorities and the police, they're scared to go. Um, the one on the right, you see larger wounds, larger round wounds. These are paint gun bullets, but not the ones that are actually filled with paint. They're metal uh, bullets that cause larger size wounds with necrosis around the side. Uh, these are non-penetrating wounds, but they require uh, care as well. And the x-ray you see of was a young man who had multiple pellet shots in his face and lost his vision. He could not go to the hospital, but was operated on by a ophthalmology fellow in suboptimal conditions, but he's now blind. I think part of the challenge here, and these are graphic wounds, as you said, in certain cases, most cases, not life-threatening, but if you can't and you're afraid to go to the hospital, then the way that you treat these is, is clearly not as good as you would do in a, in a hospital or in those kind of conditions. Um, part of what you're facing now is that people are saying they're afraid to go to hospital because then it sort of brands them as a protester, but also, and we're not including the physicians that were injured and, and the attendings and people this week, but they're afraid to treat people because they're not sure if the people necessarily are coming in are actual protesters. They may be a, some form of authority figure that's trying to catch them out. Yeah, it's, it's very hard to tease out who is trying to get more information and who is actually seeking information and trying to get help. And that's the challenge that I'm facing on my Instagram page where I get messages that are very suspicious uh, for 
uh, individuals trying to fishing for information. Doctors in Iran are facing the same thing. Uh, a lot of times they have to actually falsify diagnosis in terms of treatment. For example, uh, many times doctors have told me that I had to put removing a tumor from somebody's leg where they're actually removing pellets uh, close to vital uh, organs. Kayvan, we are in a situation now where there are accusations that individuals like yourself from outside of Iran, press like CNN, are being accused of, of fueling these protests from, from outside of the country. What's your response to that and what's your message based on what you're seeing and hearing and discussing with people back in Iran? I would say, you know, what we're saying, uh, Iranians that live outside of Iran, it mirrors what Iranians inside Iran are saying. They're really seeking basic human right. For example, to be able to go to the hospital and get basic, you know, life-saving treatment, uh, that's not too much to ask for. To ask for their freedom, freedom of choice, uh, these are just basic things that every human will be asking for. Um, so a lot of that... I, you know, I don't know what to say to that, but I'm just saying we all are echoing each other's voice. Mm. Um, for those that, that remain in the country and those of us that are, are watching and, and seeing what's going on, I know it's incredibly difficult for you to, to do your best to help all the way in New York. But are, are you also concerned for, for your family, for, for your safety, for the fact that you're, you're trying to help, but you're also in, in many ways putting yourself at risk? Yeah, I mean, we've thought about it uh, many times and, you know, our safety is is not jeopardized like the safety of the Iranian. There's always some fear, but we're not as worried as they are. So we keep going. We keep continuing to help them as much as we can. And we'll continue to have these conversations. Dr. Kevan Mihari, thank you for the work that you're doing and, and for spending time with us today. I know you're incredibly busy in your day job as it is uh, Chief of Internal Medicine at Clifton Springs Hospital. So thank you. We'll have more after this break. Welcome back to First Move. We are, I'm a speedy Gonzalez, so we are at one and a half minutes before the market opened today. But let me give you a look at what we're seeing pre-market. And it's likely to be a pretty volatile start, I think, to the trading date this Thursday. A stronger than expected read on U.S. GDP, easing some of those concerns that the U.S. economy was, in fact, in recession, despite the arguments against that. This confirms we're back in growth mode in the United States in the third quarter. But tech still under pressure after Meta, a.k.a. Facebook's weak results. Meta sinking some 23% in early trades. It's going to be interesting to see how that opens up in around one minute or so's time. Weak tech results, but lots of profit in the energy sector. Total Energies and Shell, Total Energies and Shell, both posting earnings of more than $9 billion in the third quarter, thanks to higher oil and gas prices. And Russia's war on Ukraine and the ensuing global energy crisis are having a surprisingly positive impact on the transition to greener energies. That, according to the International Energy Agency's annual outlook. Despite concerns of a rush back to coal and oil use, we're also seeing record growth in the use of solar and wind energies. The result? CO2 emissions from fossil fuels are on track to rise less than 1% this year. The IEA also says Russia, which is the world's largest fossil fuel exporter, will never recapture the market share it had pre-invasion. 
The agency now expecting global emissions to peak by 2025 as it predicts coal use to fall within the next few years, natural gas demand to plateau by the end of this decade and oil demand to level off in the mid-2030s. And joining us now, I'm pleased to say, the IEA's Executive Director, Fatih Bilrol. Great to have you on the show, sir, as always. I have to say there's plenty of great news in this, including the surprisingly small rise in emissions this year and the record intensification of focus on solar and wind energies. This is good news. I fully agree. It is good news, especially uh, when uh, people were expecting that this year global emissions uh, would grow substantially. If you look at the number, which we do at the IEA, uh, we see that there is a major expansion of renewables around the world. In uh, the western part of the world, but also in China, in India, in Southeast Asia. As a result, uh, we see that the global emissions increase only a fraction of what they did last uh, year. And the coal, there was expectation of there were major growth of coal use, and there was only a muted increase, less than 1% increase in coal use, mainly coming from uh, China. Uh, but all in all, uh, the news uh, of the emissions this year is not extremely good, but much better than uh, many have uh, expected. Yes, and to your point, if we stripped China out of that, then, then the news would be even better in, in terms of, of emissions. I think the other striking point about this report is that you're, you're talking about peak emissions, actually in the dateline for, for what we're seeing there. And again, this is positive too. We're seeing one of the side effects, the catalysts of the invasion of Ukraine being this acceleration of the transition to renewable energies. Exactly. I think the, uh, we are all focused, uh, rightly so, uh, the negative impact of this uh, crisis, which I call the first truly global energy crisis uh, uh, we have. Of course, negative impact on the economy, energy market, our lives, businesses and people. But at the same time, what I think uh, many of us uh, can be missing that the government responses to this energy crisis in terms of huge amount of money putting on the table to accelerate clean energy technologies is huge. Inflation Reduction Act from the United States, 400 billion US dollar in terms of tax incentives, in terms of subsidies for solar, wind, nuclear power, hydrogen, electric cars. In Europe, there is also a similar uh, 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 plan which we call the Repower EU. In Japan, in China, India, governments are putting real money on the table to accelerate the clean energy, not necessarily for environmental climate reasons, but mainly for energy security reasons. They see that the clean energy, renewables or nuclear power or electric cars, are they are an insurance for energy security. So. Another reason why we are seeing so much money put on the table by the governments, the public spending growing so much, is that the governments want to make sure that their economies are one of the front runners when it comes to the next chapter of the clean energy industry, 
in terms of battery manufacturing, in terms of hydrogen, in terms of the new nuclear technologies. So putting all of these things together, uh, we expect uh, that the, uh, the fossil fuels, coal, oil and gas altogether, which were uh, continuously increasing since industrial revolution year by year, will uh, make a peak in the next uh, few years and start to uh, decline uh, thereafter. Yes, and, and one of your other conclusions is that Russia, as a result, will never have the market share nor the influence on energy security in the world ever to the same way that it had pre-invasion, which is another important point. Um, the World Bank said today that they believe oil prices would fall 11 percent next year. I just wondered if you agree with that and whether we can tie that to the recent decision by OPEC Plus to cut oil output. They've said it wasn't politics, it was down to economics and, and a decision of lesser demand in the future. Would you agree with that based on what you're seeing too? So first of all, one word about uh, Russia. I think this is one of the key findings uh, of mm. our uh, uh, outlook we published uh, today. Russia was, as of 24th of February, the day of invasion, Russia was the number one energy exporter of the world by far, oil, gas, uh, coal. But Russia's main, by far the main market uh, was Europe. A very good client gets oil, gets gas and pay the money on time. And Russia lost this market forever. Mm. And it will be very difficult, this Russian oil and gas, find a new home as uh, big as uh, Europe, as lucrative as Europe. And as a result, we see Russia's share in international oil and gas trade will be halved and Russia uh, will lose about one trillion US dollars in the next 10 years from its oil and gas export revenues. Now, coming back to uh, the, the decision of the oil exporters uh, cutting the production by 2 million barrels per day, I would say this is a very unfortunate decision. Leave aside the political uh, part of the uh, uh, decision. We have been following the decisions made by uh, this uh, group many, many years. And I can tell you it is the first time maybe very unprecedented, when the global economy was on brink of a, a global recession, they decided to uh, push the prices up, therefore the inflation up, and many countries, it is not only the US or Europe or Japan, these are not uh, the main uh, casualties, the main problem is with the developing countries. Oil import in developing countries will suffer a lot from that. So from that point of view, I find this decision unprecedented. When I look at the future uh, and the, uh, or the past records of these uh, countries and their decisions, and also from a global uh, perspective, it is really unfortunate. Bad for global economics and actually bad for global politics then, reading between the lines. Fatih. Thank you. It is you summarized very well. Hmm. Sir, very quickly, because I have uh, one more minute, and this was another huge conclusion that I thought you came to. Scant evidence to support claims from, from certain quarters around the world that the climate policies and net zero targets have created the run-up in energy prices. What, what you're seeing actually is where there is more renewables, there's actually lower electricity prices. An important point to make, too. Exactly. We speak with data. 
uh, I say always, data always wins, uh, not uh, political uh, jargon or uh, this and that. Uh, when uh, we look at the different markets uh, around the world, uh, where you have the higher share of clean energy, clean electricity, you had the lower prices where you saw or uh, that the share of fossil fuels, for example, natural gas is higher, you, sh you see higher uh, electricity prices. And uh, I can tell you, I talk with many, many governments. Uh, up to now, no government leader uh, complained to me that they have uh, uh, too much clean energy. <laughs> they, in fact, regretted in the crisis time they had too little clean energy. They wish mm. they had more clean energy. So, therefore, the uh, the lasting solutions to our energy security problems, in my view, go through having uh, more clean energy in our uh, energy mixes. Yes. No one's complaining about their clean energy investment at this stage. Um, so well said. Always a pleasure and fascinating to talk to you. Thank, Thank you. you so much. And we'll Thank chat you. again soon. Thank the executive director of Thank the International Energy Agency there. So thank you. OK, coming up after the break, a groundbreaking accelerator that's helping the next generation of tech firms. His Royal Highness Prince Constantine von Orange joins to explain how. Welcome back to First Move. This week's slew of disappointing tech earnings are causing shares from Meta to Microsoft to plunge. And it also raises all sorts of questions for the next generation of startups. Firstly, how do other nations create an environment that produces big tech giants the way America has, but also shorter term provide more funding for firms that typically rely on U.S. investors for future growth? The Netherlands is one of Europe's biggest technology hubs with 2.6 times as many startups per million residents compared to the European average. Yet, U.S. venture capital firms account for 70 percent of total investment in those Dutch firms, with even more American activity expected next year. TechLeap is a kind of tech ecosystem greenhouse nurturing the best and the brightest Dutch tech companies, matching them to venture capital and helping promote innovation. The government-backed organization currently helps 23 emerging tech firms in sectors including sustainability, cybersecurity, e-commerce and marketing. And His Royal Highness Prince Constantine von Oronia is TechLeap's special envoy. He says he's on a mission to turn the Netherlands into a tech unicorn nation, but still says there's a fair way to go. And His Royal Highness joins us now. Prince Constantine, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. There's great news and there's slightly concerning news, I think, in that. Just explain mm -hmm. where the Netherlands is today and what your vision is. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for that wonderful introduction. I'm, uh, I think I'll record that. So I think the best summary <laughs> will be But thanks. We try. So, uh, where the Netherlands <laughs> is right now, I think where we are in, in Europe, uh, we're playing a bit of catch up with uh, the, the kind of the big tech uh, nations like the US, especially in the total amount of uh, value uh, of venture capital available. Uh, and I think we're seeing a, a quite a notable shift uh, to uh, what we call frontier tech or uh, new you know, deep tech. Uh, so technologies that would uh, really make an impact and how we develop businesses around that to uh, support the energy transition, food transition, and uh, many other transitions that we're currently facing. I mean, there are so many questions. Firstly, you've identified 
what helps take a, a startup to a scale up? It's levels of different funding. What is astonishing to me, actually, for Europe, one that Europe's never really managed to create the scale of the big tech giants that we've seen in the United States, but also that there's still too much reliance on U.S. money in order to grow them. There's two big questions there, but your experience and understanding of how we begin, at least, to tackle some of those challenges. Yeah, I think I think it's actually one challenge. It's the it's capital. Um, so um, all depends about you know how, how big is your first round and how will subsequent rounds uh, be and of course if there are no resident funds that can actually supply that kind of capital you have to look abroad. So far we we actually think uh, it's it's a it's actually a good deal getting American funds to invest in European companies because they bring a lot of um, experience in in scaling companies. They uh, most of our Companies will eventually have to go to the U.S. to set up shop there, so better start early, um, get investors on board that can actually support you in that. And so I think uh, um, we are we are indeed playing catch up. I uh, but I see many very very talented companies and, and entrepreneurs in in Europe, and uh, and it's good that uh, you know the capital that can go anywhere um, actually chooses to uh, to invest in Europe and and uh, grow these companies. So I'm I'm actually quite. Uh, optimistic. I do think that our uh, institutional investors like pension funds uh, are uh, still far too hesitant to enter the uh, venture capital asset class. Uh, so that's something that we are concerned about because once they, you know, the Dutch pension funds are over, have over a trillion dollars in uh, under management. Uh, if they would only do, um, uh, say, 0.1 percent in, uh, in venture capital, we already really would explode the venture capital sector in, in, in the Netherlands. And that's such a huge point. And then they benefit from the growth of these companies, too, which is arguably a far better return at times, assuming that they do make it to um, a, a full company status or a scale up status um, compared with yeah, traditional well, investment like bonds or equities. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's obviously risky. Uh, but I think uh, what we also see that uh, our pension funds are really concerned with uh, with impact, uh, especially on climate. And um, and these companies, these um these startup and scale-ups are actually the, the ones that are really driving forward these transitions. So if you if you are honest about uh, your your impact ambitions, then uh, uh, you know venture capital and um, and startups should be part of your portfolio. Yes, even if it's a small part, particularly when with the firms that you're looking at and helping with TechLeap, it's sustainability, big data, help, cybersecurity. I mean, these are crucial elements to successful, successfully functioning uh, societies and economies. So um, worthwhile investment and potentially lucrative too. What more is needed? And what do these firms tell you, even in the short term, whether it's talent, whether it's government support, whether it's tax incentives? There's plenty of roles that need to be played here. In the in the first place, what's needed? If we talk about government, let's say, what more can government do? Oh, well, governments can. Uh, I think they can do everything to create a climate in which these companies can thrive. So, for instance, uh, fiscal stimulus for um, early stage investment, so that there will be more uh, capital flowing into the very early stages of these companies, so that they have a better start of their of their uh, ventures life. Um, another really important element is uh, share options to make sure that uh, 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 these companies can hire the best talent um, nationally and internationally and retain them and make sure that some of the capital, if there's an, in if there's an exit, 
will uh, actually retain be retained by uh, by these um, these employees that will then be the next generation of founders or next generation of angel investors. So to really start growing that ecosystem, I think they're called mafias. So you had obviously the PayPal mafia. We also see Uber uh, producing a lot of uh, new um, angel investors and founders. We've seen it also at uh, at Spotify in uh, in Sweden. We're seeing it a bit in the Netherlands of Adyen, our uh, our kind of unicorn uh, payment company. And uh, and that's really what you what you would like to see is this this kind of a flywheel starting to go of people that think big, uh, pay for it, and give back. Yeah, startups start to provide seed capital to other startups, um, and then exactly. we can all flourish. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, very quickly, I know you've been talking to a number of the smartest, brightest, best startups in the Netherlands. Are you allowed to give me even just one name where you are really excited about their prospects? It's an unofficial royal seal of approval, or is that asking too much? I'm really excited by Remote. It's Uh a company founded in 2019. Uh, It's now, uh, I think they have about uh, 1,200 people, and they're Mm -hmm. valued at $3.5 So a really rapid growth company. Uh, with a very impressive entrepreneur. So uh, that would be my, uh, it's not even a tip. I think that's, I think that most people have known, (laughs) have seen the tip. I'm just asking for my guest bookers. So they're going to be the, um, one of the next uh, tech startups that we get on the show. Um, Your Royal Highness, thank you so much for your time. Um, I look forward to continuing the conversation because it's such a crucial part of uh, helping us generate innovation, technology and supporting startup growth in the future. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much for your interest. Great to chat. Thank you. Okay, coming up. Porcelain promise. Elon Musk carrying an actual sink into Twitter headquarters on Wednesday. What it means, though, for the future of the troubled tech firm. Next. Welcome back to First Move. It's a sink or swim moment for Twitter. Elon Musk carrying a sink literally into Twitter headquarters on Wednesday as his deal to buy the social media platform inches towards the finish line. As Musk himself says, let that sink in. Elon, in fact, with a sweeping mission statement on Twitter today detailing what he wants to do when he takes control. Mark Stewart joins us now to discuss this. I do like the fact that he changed his Twitter profile to Chief Twit but it's not officially closed yet. What does that plan involve, Mark? What more can you tell us? Hi, Julia. So it was just after nine o'clock this morning, actually, that we got some new insight when Elon Musk went to Twitter with a post simply titled Dear Advertisers. And in that post, he gave us a little bit of insight, more insight about what he views the future of the company to be. First of all, he used the phrase digital town square, something we heard before. But he also got a little bit poetic. And I want to I want to point out one phrase in particular. Um, He said, I didn't do it, referring to the sale, because it would be easy. I didn't do it to make more money. I did it to try to help humanity, whom I love. And I did so with humility, recognizing that failure in pursuing this goal, despite our best efforts, is a very real 
possibility. So uh, a bit of a softer, perhaps more prophetic side from Elon Musk. But again, the stage is set for the sale to go forward on Friday. We heard from Dan Ives, a frequent guest of this program. Um, He said that he expects this deal to take place by Friday, uh, calling it Cinderella finally getting the glass slipper that fits. Uh, He also pointed out that he believes the overhang on Tesla is now removed with Musk likely uh, having likely sold stock this week to round out the rest of the Twitter deal. And Julia, speaking about Twitter stock, uh, back in the green this morning for, again, a likely sale sometime tomorrow morning, perhaps. Fascinating. And I agree with his statement, actually. I do think that for all the noise around Elon Musk, he was trying to help here. I think the danger is that the advertisers just felt like it was going to be some kind of um, vocal free-for-all, which arguably, given what we've seen on other social media platforms, doesn't help anybody. Um, Investors, well, up 1%, so not quite got that sinking feeling. Very quickly, Mark, do, do you have a view on what you thought the sink was about? Physically well, taking I think in there. I think I think that Musk has been having some sour moments about this. I mean, obviously, this is a new he's was almost boxed into the sale. So I think he needed to have some fun to say, I am in this. I'm behind it. That's kind of the takeaway I have from this. OK, no kitchen sinking. Seventy five percent of employees. I'm, I'm sure they were pretty nervous when they saw him walking in with that sink. We shall see. Mark Stewart, thank you so much for that. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages shortly. You can search for at Jay Chatterley at CNN. In the meantime, Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.